0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn, Focus Compounding, sitting next to Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today?
1: It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you?
0: It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, welcome, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all the content we put out there into the internet. Follow me on Twitter, at Focus Compound. And if you're interested in learning more about our money management services, reach out to me, at andrew at focuscompounding.com if you're a family office or you work for family offices reach out to me let's have a conversation if you're an individual and you're interested reach out to me let's have a conversation so in today's podcast we are going to continue on with our q a well this is actually a new one um uh, so to be on the lookout for that you could follow me on twitter that's where we do a call for questions jeff always likes to read what's happening on the Twitter bar, it says President Biden announces ban on Russian energy imports.
1: This is not very exciting. Yeah. It's it's real news. That's, and then Apple announces the product launch.
0: And then someone named Joy Reed. And then state of play. Don't know what that's mm-hmm. all about. Okay, so first question. He says, is cash tag Jeff? Your your cash tag Jeff. Uh-huh. That's a very that's that's pretty cool that, that that this has become a thing. Still doing a carnivore diet updates on it question mark uh no, people are concerned for your health.
1: I'm not I did do that, and uh, I liked it. Did yeah. you feel better on it? Yes, and it was uh easy to do, yeah,
0: just because it's kind of blocks out anything that you could potentially have
1: that's yeah you don't have to th- yeah, you don't have to think about things on that now I did have um what? Butter and and other uh, animal products, right? I had butter and heavy cream and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But um, yeah, I did instead of like keto or something where you have to count something. I'm not gonna do that. Yeah, no, it, 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 that worked well. Yeah, and it, it works good because it's easy to tell people or you know you don't. It's just you eat this or you, not that. Yeah. So at one point you did the
0: all salad diet. That didn't. That was bad. And you said because it's easy because anywhere you go you could at least get a salad yes. right so it was kind of socially stuff like that it was just mm-hmm. not a pain in the butt so it's now, good for traveling traveling yeah. it's not
1: good for home though yeah uh-huh because you need fresh stuff all the time you know what I mean it it's just kind of more work. upkeep and it, stuff yeah it doesn't work so well for home.
0: so you did the salad diet and yeah. then you did the carnivore diet and you prefer mm-hmm. the carnivore
1: oh yeah in terms of how I felt and stuff yeah yeah it's not a recommendation to other people but yeah that's true
0: consult with your your own uh, health professional okay um next question deep work question i love these questions i've heard you say that jeff can read for three plus hours straight if no interruptions how long can jeff read books slash reports without needing a break what about you andrew i would say jeff could probably read for longer than three hours straight but i'll let you
1: answer that question Mm -hmm. yeah i mean that's that's probably true yeah i could definitely do that reading yeah I can't write for three more than three hours straight, but yeah, reading is a lot more passive, yeah. Reading, taking notes, things like that. Do you just like pop
0: your head up ever? Do you look around? Do you lose focus? How do you keep that focus? Because this Um, is really more of a focused question.
1: Yeah, I'm just able to do that. It's not a big deal. I mean, I print out the things and read them. I don't think that I could read on a computer screen thing. For that long probably i mean maybe you could but you might get distracted um you know you might think oh it's been two hours i need to check my email or something like that Mm -hmm. but uh yeah i think that's true um i think i
0: watched a video on youtube of guy spears office and he had a room that was really a reading room yeah. with nothing in it other than, I think, books and a clock on the wall.
1: I wouldn't mind that, yeah. And I think that's I'd just a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> I like not knowing how much time is passing, but um, yeah.
0: So Jeff doesn't have a cell phone. And I mm-hmm. I remember I asked you at one point, I'm like, I mean, are you going to get a watch? Do you want a watch so yeah. you can check the time? And you said you thought about it, but you just have your Kindle. That's really mm-hmm. how you keep track of time. I have
1: a Kindle that I keep track of time, yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, if I need to check time, if I really need to, then I can because then it's not showing me the time all the time that I can just press it, yeah.
0: But I think this is how to focus and what you can do. I really like the idea of Guy Spear doing that, like having a dedicated area mm-hmm. where when you're in it, you're in the deep work, it's almost like a meditative thing. There's no technology going on, there's no distractions. I mean, there's even been studies that have shown, if you work and your cell phone is kind of oh, like yeah. on the desk right next to you when you're working, you're not fully engrossed in what you're doing. Right. So I would recommend doing that. I mean, it's funny, like I think about like my grandpa, for example, mm-hmm. he runs a steel company in Illinois. He doesn't even bring his cell phone into his office. He just leaves it in his car all day. Now he's got a oh. phone at his desk for right, work right. and stuff like that, but he's fully engrossed in deep work in what he's doing. Um, so I would say do that. I would say I have time blocks throughout the day yeah. when you check your email. That is one of the most important things. Yeah. Jeff last week talked about how you know, we were talking about Mark Zuckerberg and ideas for the future with, you know, clicking your head or mm-hmm. having glasses and how you said that you would, you know, basically not ever do that anyway because you don't like to passively receive information. You like to actively choose what mm-hmm. you're going to read. So anything that's like flashing around headlines and stuff like that, um, is not something that you'd be interested in. And there's a reason for that, right? I personally believe that our brains aren't meant to basically consume the amount of headlines, information, stimulus, tweets, craziness that we do every single day. And there's studies as well, like your brain gets stressed or you get stressed, it releases cortisol in -hmm. your brain and it weighs on your prefrontal cortex, which is how you make decisions and stuff like that. So I think anything you can do to sort of limit that and the distractions will only help you think better. And that could even mean deleting twitter from your phone so something that i did is delete twitter from your phone so if you're ever going to go on twitter you're going to use your computer that you actively chose to go on twitter Mm -hmm. to use when i deleted twitter from my phone there was a couple times where i would just like pull out my phone and go to click twitter app Mm -hmm. the twitter app that i didn't have have anymore because i i deleted it and i'd be like this is crazy to me i didn't even like think in my brain pull out twitter to go Mm -hmm. and scroll i just habitually did it it's kind of like the Pavlovian conditioning thing. So delete Instagram from your phone, delete Twitter from your phone. If you wanna use those things, you have to download them on your phone, but you're actively choosing to do that, which I think is really important. Right. Um, and just try to really just be, one of my main goals always, quite frankly, is just to try to be more deeply engrossed in what I'm doing. So think deeply. Try like spending time during the day where you're literally just thinking and something simple as like if you're going to drive in your car don't Mm -hmm. listen to music just sit there with nothing on and i promise you you'll be like this is crazy and i think about like especially nowadays we receive so much information Mm -hmm. but how much of it's basically you know they say like going in one ear out the other right how much of it are you actually processing and thinking about um so i think if you have periods during your day where you're just thinking about stuff that you read or thinking about whatever information you've been working on i really just believe it'll help with your memory it'll help with your retention it'll help with you recalling that information we actually did a podcast once and you had said that something you like to do after you read a 10k is go for a walk Mm -hmm. and just think
1: about it oh no definitely yeah
0: and these are just little subtle things i think people could do that you would just realize that it would just increase your performance dramatically. And uh, printing out stuff is great as well because you're just fully engrossed in what it is you're doing. So marking Mm -hmm. stuff up and writing it, you're actively working on it. And I think nowadays that's just more important than anything.
1: Yeah, I'd say with the three hours plus thing, you know, yes, you can do it. But what I would suggest to most people is like 90 minutes. If you do, that's always long enough that you really get into it. And then you can take a break and do it again later. You know, you doing two, three times a day instead of one big block is often gonna work better for people, especially because then you don't have like an excuse, Um, like like for instance, 60 minutes, let's say, you know, you can always um, basically be like, uh, I have 60 minutes. And not that it's interfering with other things. People will say, you know, I don't have the time for that or whatever, but you'll have the time for an hour and it shouldn't, you know, and usually you can get your mind to be like, okay, I can do this, put everything else aside and I'll still get to everything else later. For whatever reason, if you're like, oh, I'm gonna do this all day, then you'll come up with all the things you have to do now because you can't do it all day, you know? Mm-hmm. So a shorter period of time, but completely focused on, I think matters more. Because I think a lot of people find they spend more time than they think, like say investing or something, more time than they think. If they add up all the time they spend on a site that's about investing, on a Twitter thing that has investing stuff, listening to investing things, it actually adds up to a lot of time, but there's not a lot of uh, active stuff. Mm-hmm.
0: You're passively doing it. Yeah. And I think one thing I try to work on, Mika, because you asked this question, is if I'm editing a podcast, for example, I know it's going to take probably an hour and a half to two hours. I'm just, but I'm literally, that's the only thing I'm doing if i'm going through email i know you know if you have a block like all right i'm gonna spend 20 minutes to do this i know that that's literally the only thing that i'm doing and i just think that's really important jeff wrote a a post on this a long time ago uh, how to invest when you only have an hour a day to do it just google how to invest when you only have an hour a day to do it jeff gannon and you'll see the pdf but this is a pretty good layout and you actually talked about um you give a good roadmap basically for doing that and how you said you tell Alexa to set a timer for 90 minutes or whatever it is and um you dedicate that time strictly to doing what you're doing and if you're browsing stuff throughout the week and you come across articles you like you even recommended like have something on your desk or a basket where you mm-hmm. could print that article out and you put it in yeah. and then you know for one hour a week you basically just go through all of it but you're engrossed and you're actively engaged in that process
1: yeah and the other thing i'd say for the investing thing specifically separate the like finding of ideas from the digging into that idea so you can have one thing where all you do is pick all the stocks that you might be interested in because otherwise what's going to happen is you're going to run a screen you're going to find something you like then you're going to go okay i'll look at that then you look at it at a certain point into it and then you're like okay i'll go back to this i'll look through this and you kind of go down a rabbit hole that way instead if you go you have a screen 100 stocks on it and you say oh here are the 10 that look really interesting based on just like quick fs numbers or something then you set those aside to actually go into them because i think a lot of people like run a bunch of screens look at a bunch of stocks they've looked at it a little bit they've seen it's like the quick fs type level or something but they haven't really read the 10ks Mm -hmm. and so separating it out and actually making yourself Spending some time on that stock, I think is a good idea.
0: Yeah, I'll reiterate. I don't think our brains are capable of all this constant stimulus and using these platforms where a lot of money and a lot of smart people and scientists basically designed the platforms to be incredibly addicting. Um, you know, it's like when this whole Ukraine, Russia thing started happening and I started reading more tweets about it and just to stay up on the news because I thought this was like something that was very timely to follow. Mm-hmm all all of a sudden you know every time I open my twitter all I would get is yeah. just a flood of tweets of just the craziest shit ever that I'm like I my brain can't handle this you know yeah so deleting yeah. twitter from your phone is will probably help a lot um someone's going to like screenshot like a recent tweet from uh, andrews iphone or whatever but uh just being aware of all this too i think is better and it only gives you an edge but i really just think you'll you'll notice it just try it for like a week almost like a social media diet, and I promise you, you'll be sitting there and be like, wow, this is what my brain feels like. It just it feels so fresh. It's noon. And I've been up since, you know, six or 7am. And I've, I've done a lot of work. But my brain just feels like I could do this all day long. It's it's really a beautiful thing. I mean, you look at Monish, right? If you email mm-hmm. him, because he's very big on this as well, and you got to guard it like crazy. Jeff's very big on this as well. It's very important. I mean, you email him. I guess if he emails you back it's like a handwritten letter back that his assistant apparently scans and sends off to you.
1: Yeah, I would love that. Yeah, that you could just write on it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's just, I mean, he's talked about before how he gets the office and I think his his assistant or people that work with him, mm-hmm. they'll give him, uh, print out the emails for him to read. And I just, it really makes a big difference. Just try it. Yeah, and I mean, what, for, else, what do you
1: have to lose, right? For investing and stuff, some people have jobs where they can't do this, but for a lot of things, you know honestly if you checked your email like three times during the day like in the middle of the day beginning and end you know um for a lot of people doing like what we do um you'd be surprised most people wouldn't react by saying oh my god you took too long to get back to me mm-hmm. and yet some people are probably checking your email like 30 times a day
0: mm-hmm. it was funny. i remember at one point you we were on different uh time zones yeah both living in Texas <laughs> yeah. but I'll say we're on different sleeping <laughs> schedules but I did think I was like so Jeff likes to work through the night mm-hmm. I was like that's so amazing because okay you check your email at five o'clock six o'clock mm-hmm. at night whenever you would wake up you have all your emails no mm-hmm. one is really probably doing email <laughs> the majority of people until the following day I'm like so you just check it once bang it out and you're done
1: hmm yeah
0: so all right Obviously, the topic of focus in social media is very interesting to me. Um, Trey asks, next question, what investors did Jeff learn the most from when building his own investing process?
1: That's a very good question. Um, I'd say there's a bunch of them. I mean, probably, honestly, Warren Buffett is probably the number one. Um, but that's a lot of studying like that capital allocation book other things about Buffett, not just like how he is today, but lots of different things about him. That would probably be the number one, I would say. But um, there's a bunch of others that I really like their books and kind of have learned some stuff from them that I find useful. Uh, The couple of books that I think are really good, um, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, which we've talked about. There's Always Something to Do. Um, and then I also might surprise people, but I'm also a big fan of the Peter Lynch stuff. Um, Peter Lynch is a very interesting like stock picker and some of the things he said, I, I thought were, uh, really surprisingly good advice. Um, for whatever reason, he doesn't seem to get as much respect among serious investors. Why
0: is that? Is that because the way he invested? Is that because he hasn't invested in some time? Is it too simple?
1: you know kind of thing that he was talking about yeah he also has invested for a long time he was kind of a he was really celebrity type mm-hmm. um i don't know sort of like a, you remember bill miller being the s p yeah yeah sort of like that yeah i mean his fund was huge but yeah going on like wall street week and stuff mm-hmm. like that
0: so a lot of people somebody said does people think i look like uh peter lynch that you look like him yeah okay this 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 happened last (laughs) week there's nobody else who (laughs) thinks that the resemblance between peter lynch and focus compound is uncanny Mm. i thought that was kind of funny um (laughs) but yeah is it is it because he uh he just kind of got out of the game a while ago you don't really hear about him as much he didn't stay in it i mean his record is phenomenal obviously is it because he was more of a growthy type investor so people
1: don't I don't know he was mutual funds instead of hedge funds hedge funds became the big thing everyone's yeah. excited about now uh, you know for a long time that's been there's some allure about that hedge fund stuff differently um yeah maybe came from a, maybe it was the wrong time period I guess yeah like you said because he wasn't he retired so early um probably because he burned himself out with the what he was doing oh yeah like seven yeah. days a week he was. Yeah. Hustling. Um, but lots of meetings with companies, lots of thinking about specific stock stuff. And he talks about it in the books, but yeah, I mean we're very specific stock driven and less quantitative than you would think. Um, like I've said before, like the quantitative thing is just the discipline of it, that we don't buy things that are too expensive. And I guess most things we buy are kind of somewhat predictable. So like quant things would say value and um, predictable, you know, like quality or low volatility or whatever. but really that's like okay that's such a tiny part of your time just narrowing down the universe of what you consider but then all of it is really very specific to specific um stocks you know we maybe don't explain that enough when we talk on the podcast about it but it's really just learning specifically about that business and that management and all that and doing that research so it's very stock specific and that really is what he was like so
0: maybe a good follow-up question you mentioned buffett you mentioned peter lynch what are some things that you took away from each of those individuals to
1: your process? Both of them I'd say is simplification stuff, um, figuring out, because both of them, everyone tries to figure out where the returns came from and everything. And you kind of realize, oh, actually, it's, it's a lot simpler than people think um, in that some things really move the needle and then other things do not and aren't really worth worrying a lot about how they did with them. I think for me, that's part of it with Buffett. You can see his entire record that way. Um, so uh, I, I think that probably that kind of simplification of it is the thing that helped the most. Uh, Buffett's returns, not a lot of it comes from things other than a few industries. I don't know, four or five industries or something like that. Uh, buying in pretty big size in those things and really his biggest positions. You know, Not a lot of it is explained by other stuff. I mean, he did some other things and we don't have enough of a exact record of his um, fund years. But um, yeah, buying and holding for longer term, not forever, but for longer term in some of his favorite ideas in a few industries is, is a really big um, part of the success that he had. I think we've talked about other things before, like um, buying when there's a change in the cap allocation things like that that they did so a lot of it isn't I mean he's kind of said these things at times but a lot of it isn't from is from watching what he's done over the years and trying to see oh here are the things that haven't worked out as well for him and here are the things that really mattered um like he bought Occidental recently, right? Yeah. Yeah. Carl Icahn sold out. Yeah. They might have been trading with each other. I thought that was funny. I feel like they've been on the other side
0: of a trade a couple of times now. Yeah.
1: Um, But historically, Buffett has not done amazing with commodity things. Like if you look and see, even when he's done well enough with them, if he had put that same like size if he'd been able to put that same sort of size into one of the other things that he had and liked a lot at the time he probably would have done better now sometimes he's able to put a lot more size into it because it, it, commodities are something that can absorb uh, commodity stocks like oil are ones that tend to be able to to be very large companies pretty high turnover they can absorb a lot of his buying activity compared to some of the other things he owned where he doesn't have to buy more than 10% of the company although with his warrants he has more than 10% of that company but um I think that that's part of it, you know, so he did a lot of things, but then a lot of those didn't necessarily seem to affect his returns that much so um i I think sort of watching him and trying to figure that stuff out um more so than necessarily what he said, although I pay attention to what he said, but I would say that's um yeah, pretty much that, and uh Peter Lynch saw the same thing too. But you know, lots of other people have really interesting things to say. I don't know that I've learned as much in terms of the approach to it. I think Graham and Fisher are two of the best to read and I agree with their philosophies a lot. I don't know if I've taken as much from them exactly. Mm -hmm. Got it. Next question. There are several
0: smaller defense contractors or companies that sell into military related DOD whose stocks have not moved on the unfolding Russia situation, unlike their larger peers. Is this an area Jeff would recommend looking at?
1: Um, maybe. Usually takes a lot of time to learn about this, you know. Um, but it's possible. It's just that sometimes people know more than you do about what contracts they have and what their specialties are. You know, a lot of the smaller ones aren't as diversified across things. Um, there's also ones in other countries that might even be better, to be honest, to buy, that not, not in the U.S., but things that serve other NATO countries in Europe and stuff like that. I don't know a lot about the ones that are smaller for the most part. Um,
0: Next question. What are your thoughts on Buffett's recent purchase, $5 billion buying spree of OXY? I'm sure you will already be covering this one, though.
1: <laughs> we didn't do, like, a whole special buy guess about it or anything. You mm-hmm. know, I, I thought it was interesting. It didn't seem to get... I don't know. Maybe I'll see more about it in the future. A ton of attention, right? No, it didn't. I guess because he'd owned it before. Probably, yeah.
0: He's had exposure to it.
1: I feel like I see things oh. about Buffett trim this position by almost nothing, added this, like mm-hmm. when a thirteen F comes out or something. You know, right,
0: what's five billion to one hundred forty?
1: Well, the way he bought it, did you see?
0: No, I didn't. Oh, okay. What is that?
1: The size of what he bought and how few days and how much it was going up at the time while he was oh, maybe it. it was Carl Icahn. It, it was. It was pretty. I mean, so. I'd have to check the exact days but I mean oil was going up. The stock was he bought in a range of like um do you have the stock price right now? Uh you'll yeah. put it in there. I'm going to guess there's probably an article about this or something that tells me well everything Occidental about Japan. petroleum corporate so what it say? $55. Yeah, so I feel like he was buying between like maybe 47 and 55 like what it is now and did it in a period of 3 to 4 days. Wow. All the purchases that you see. Now he wouldn't have known the size before he I think the period that they're covering only covers about three days. Let's see. Yeah, so let's do like a five day or something like that. If I'm right. Yeah, I think so. I think it's all in that like five day period. Hmm. Yeah, and then the stock wasn't flat or falling. Um, any thoughts on it and the purchase? Yeah, I looked a little bit at it. Uh, you know, I was bought before, and it's interesting. He he is always betting on higher oil prices. That's something he's done before. Um, yeah. Uh, do, you want, do you have the quick investing so you can see it? So, I mean, it's a little complicated because they did their merger, which is basically what he funded. But if we look, we can see, um, let's see, how much are they? Let's see, if you go to free ca- uh, the cash flow statement, let's see. Yeah, so they had what, eight million free cash flow in 2021? Billion. Eight billion, yeah. Mm-hmm. And free cash from twenty twenty one, that maybe not quite that, but you know, not that far off of that. And uh obviously prices are higher now. And then if we go to the overview, uh yeah. Mm. Not crazy. No, on a leverage basis. Mm-hmm. What are we talking about there? Um, you know, we're talking about ten times a really reasonable price. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're to ten times on an on leverage basis, mm-hmm. taking into account um that yeah. So obviously prices could fall apart and everything. He's done this before when prices are pretty strong in uh, oil things. He doesn't seem to buy at the bottom there. In fact, I think, he did he sell out around the same time that he was selling out like the airline things and all that? Was it during uh, the COVID-type period that he sold out? I'm not sure. I mean, is
0: this one of those situations where he's got too much cash and not enough ideas?
1: I don't know. It's pretty aggressive buying. I mean, I think... I think it was probably tied to stuff he saw with oil and um, maybe what was happening with Ukraine and all that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And just thinking it was a good time to buy it. Um, it could have been, I didn't we didn't look like at the chart about volume and stuff like that. Maybe it was also something he was thinking about buying and then suddenly you have a chance to buy a lot and probably want to buy a lot before having to file and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. again. But yeah, it seemed like a pretty, and it seemed to me that it was Buffett. You know, I mean, I'm sure people will wonder mm-hmm. he made the original investment. I just think that it is Buffett. It mm. doesn't match up with me for it being a, for one of the other managers.
0: Next question. How does he model long term growth of revenue, margins, et cetera? Does he look at TAM, market share, competitive advantage, et cetera? What else? How much of past record of growth can be extrapolated? Does he ever invest based on expecting change in return on invested capital of a business? Hmm.
1: Uh, hmm. uh, record of growth can be extrapolated. It depends on what the growth is, the source of the growth, right? Isn't that one of the biggest things is figuring out what is the source of the growth? Mm -hmm. So is it been that you've been raising prices over time? Is it that you have one product that you sell? Is it expansion of that product? You know, all those sorts of things. That's the one that's hard. We talked about, um, meta, right? And is it cheap? That's part of the problem that I always have with all those kinds of stocks is, what is this coming from exactly? Like with Meta, is it is it um, greater effectiveness of the advertising? Because if it is, then it's very specific to like privacy concerns, very specific to how people use the product and all of that, right? But if it was like a subscriber thing, it's a lot easier to figure that out. Sure. Right? Mm-hmm. Like Netflix, you can model that out really easily.
0: Um, So like the stickiness of that growth?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, it really gets down to figuring out exactly what's driving the growth. Is it more sales to the same customers? Is it increasing prices? Is it signing up more people through like word of mouth, those sorts of things? A lot of times for me, the the newer type things uh, that I decide not to buy into, even though it has a good growth record and stuff, is if they're marketing it, right? So something that's growing by word of mouth, something that's you know viral or whatever, um, is much more attractive. That's something that there's heavy marketing into it because then i was worried about the effectiveness of the marketing I think that was an issue for did we ever talk about it um 100 pet meds that's something that bothered me about it although i like the business a lot more than other people because i'd read some stuff where the people wanted to short it and stuff and i thought mm, this isn't that bad a business actually but i was always concerned that i thought that their return on their marketing was getting worse over time it was just more expensive to acquire new customers and so even if the business is pretty good that's a really big problem and a lot of companies when people um, show me some fast growing thing, that is something that I worry about because nowadays a lot of what they're showing me is something that's advertised heavily for that. You know, on the internet and stuff, it would mm-hmm. from day one. And that wasn't as common with companies in the past. Like there wasn't a lot of advertising by really small and new companies in mm-hmm. the past. Yeah.
0: We care a lot about market share. We care a lot about competitive advantages. We care a lot about the industry landscape. Mm-hmm. To your question about modeling long-term growth and revenue and margins, we're not the type of investors that model. will justify a stock being cheap today based on like fiscal year 2025 earnings. We don't be model. like, oh, this is yeah. trading today at five times
1: 2025 earnings. Mm-hmm. We're not, we don't do that. I mean, I asked, can you raise prices by, you know, inflation or faster every year? Can you grow in line with nominal GDP? Can you grow as fast as some certain industry? Um, Maybe some things like that I would look at and say, yeah.
0: Do you ever invest based on expecting change in return on capital, invested capital? Um, I think we'd rather invest on the past being predictable to the future
1: and like the stability of it all. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm tempted if I know that supply in the industry is going to be lower in the future than it is now. That That would definitely... If there's one thing, if you're sending me an email and you're like, I really wanna interest you in the stock, convincing me that supply will definitely be lower in the future than it is currently, like capacity will be lower. Uh, that was probably the number one way to get me interested in an industry or business that you know competitors are, there are gonna be fewer competitors operating with less capacity in the future. That would excite me more than there's gonna be a lot more demand. Mm-hmm. In the past,
0: you have talked about valuing over the counter markets differently due to its high ROIC are there other situations where you would be willing to pay up for a certain industry or company? How do you get comfort with the uncertainty of future growth?
1: Uh, it's a good question. I mean, with OTC markets, you just don't pay a ridiculous price. We've held the stock at times when it's been getting a little more expensive, but I, I mean, I think, um, it's probably not at more than 25 times earnings It's probably below that technically. And, uh, that wasn't the price that we bought it at. So, you know, for, um, a lot of stocks, people probably think 25 times earnings is not a crazy price. Um, I'd say 25 times earnings is kind of a high price for a business that has lots of assets and stuff, but for a business that has really no assets and we think has some pricing power, then 25 times earnings isn't crazy. So that's where you get comfortable with the uncertainty of future growth. It is because then if the future growth is five, uh, let's say 6%, um, then i'm fine if you're, you're right because you're paying a four percent free cash flow yield or something like that or in the, maybe five percent because actually free cash flow here is higher than p than um earnings usually um if you're you know if you're getting five percent free cash flow yield let's say then all you need to be comfortable with is that it'll grow five percent and a lot of that is probably pricing um it is true that i really don't know if it'll grow five percent or ten percent so you try to pay a price that it would be okay with five percent and if you get ten percent then you know, it worked out better, but I don't like do a DCF or something. And it's true that, uh, you know, I really can't tell the difference between five, 10, 15% over the next few years, even over the longer term, it's hard to tell the difference between a 5% growing business and a 10% for me. So yeah, I gotta pay low enough with the amount that I'm pretty, feel pretty sure that it can grow. And usually that means either how fast will the market grow and it'll keep its market share. It could be that, or how much can they raise prices? Those are the two you can usually be the most confident in, like as a thing um, to invest on. How much market share it'll take, or how fast like a new industry will grow, those are hard ones to figure Mm -hmm. out. Yeah.
0: Next question What stock was in your wheelhouse that you never bought because of valuation that you may regret? And is there a stock that you frequently buy and sell due to low valuation, high valuation? We don't do the value
1: trading thing. No, don't do that. Um, yeah, what has been my wheelhouse that I never bought because of valuation and that I regret. I mean, we've talked about some things, I would say probably Copart, you think? Yeah, that's the, yeah. One, the answer we usually give. Cause I had done but, this thing where I wrote, a, it had picked things off a screener and I had to write them up at Guru Focus. And I would say that if you go back and look at those stocks that I picked, what was happening is I couldn't get low valuation. That wasn't part of the deal basically. It had a computer was picking it. So it had to be what things would I write up. And so my decision really was, I'd rather write up things I feel confident in as a business, even though I don't love the price, than pick things off the screen that happened to be the lowest price. Cause the logical thing would be to like, start with the lowest price, right? But then my concern is the screen is picking up things that thinks are predictable and high ROIC and stuff. But really, I look at them and go, as a business, I don't like it that much. So if you look, the ones that I wrote, some of the ones I wrote up were Ball, Waters, Copart, Exponent. Um, so, you know, you could look at those companies and those are ones. Um, there have been others probably. I One I do regret. Because I didn't, I didn't do something I should have, which is to keep following it closely. Um, I don't know that I would have bought it though. I, I'm, I'm not sure about that. But a stock that I followed, learned a lot about, and and paid attention to for a long time, but decided I, I wasn't probably going to buy it with the then current CEO in was Games Workshop, so Warhammer in the UK, yeah, and uh, they had a change in their CEO and if you look their business got a lot better Then i don't know that i really would have bought on that but that was a business that i probably should have followed very closely and uh, it might have been one where you saw a real change in how they uh, did things because i thought that was something that had an amazing market position you know fan base whatever you want to call it sort of thing but the strategy that they had was not um necessarily going to grow the earnings a ton, they had good return on invested capital, but they, it was the right market position. Uh it was the right business, but it wasn't being operated in a way that was gonna make you a lot of money. It's sort of like, sometimes you look at a business and you see, um, you can tell that they have pricing power, but you can't tell if they're going to raise prices. Mm-hmm. And those, it makes sense to like, look at and wait, because then when you see the sign that they do it, it's sort of like a change in capital allocation. Sometimes there's a business that Is a great business but they're doing they're doing the wrong stuff with the money if you just take that same business and they say we're going to buy back stock from now on it changes the economics of it so when it's a really good business that's one to pay a lot of attention to so copart's the one that i would say probably on that one next question what are the one to three things jeff currently
0: struggles with the most that he wants to improve over the next three to five years how do you determine when you found enough information to make a decision on a stock How can you tell if you're fishing for too much info on a stock before the buy? Hmm. Uh, So what do you wanna improve on? One to three things. Okay,
1: one to three things. Um, I would like to be able to find, well, I'd like to be able to find more ideas. That's always it. What are the things I would like to be able to find more of though? Um, Definitely like to be able to find things in other countries. Total failure in that in my entire investing career i think i've found things in the us uk and japan so far that's been it lately i've it's been us uh for a lot of things but even then if you really look at all the international stuff i've ever done i'd be better off if i only did things in japan and the uk which is a pretty sad uh number of countries and like limited to how developed they are and how all that sort of thing but the other things haven't worked out so well um so yeah i'd like to develop ability to find stocks in other countries. Um, I'd like to be able to find more ideas in the category that we look at, which means I guess certain industries i have to learn more about that are industries that I don't currently um, feel are in my circle of competence.
0: Are there any countries in particular that you would wanna go look for opportunities in?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, look, there's no reason why the other English speaking countries um, haven't been a good place for me to find. There's no reason why I haven't found things in Canada and Australia and stuff like that. Um, a lot of Europe, definitely we should be able to find things in, in Germany, Nordic countries and stuff like that and it hasn't been great. Um, so yeah, now there's a lot of, I should say there's a lot of companies listed in Japan, UK, US. So. It's not as crazy as it sounds that those are the ones. Um, And honestly, Japan, uh, on average, the record's been better than U.S. for me. Um, So UK, the record's been probably as good. So um, yeah, but it's a real problem. I don't know exactly how to fix
0: it. And then his next question, how do you determine when you found enough information to make a decision on a stock? How can you tell if you're fishing for too much info on a stock before buy?
1: That's a good question. I'm probably not the right person to ask for the last one because I will gather up any sort of information and search for a really long time for a stock to get a high degree of confidence. Uh, I mentioned how funny people thought it was that I watched all the DreamWorks movies and stuff and I didn't buy the stock, by the way. So you can see that I can watch all of the movies for a company and not buy their stock. So um, I can go pretty far with the stock and decide not to buy it. But I guess with the information thing, it's really a question of, um, sometimes people work really hard to figure out like if they can be sure that this thing isn't going to go wrong or something like that. Um, But there's no real evidence that they should think that it is, that that is happening. They just wanna prove that it like can't happen, Mm -hmm. I guess. That's kind of more the issue. Uh, Usually there's, I don't know if it's three or five things or whatever, but there's only a few things that really drive whether this investment's gonna work or not for you. So a lot of times I find it's more of a macro thing that they're worried about, and that can be a real problem. And sometimes a real macro thing can ruin your investment. You could be thinking, oh, should I buy a um, oil company or whatever, and what if, it's so expensive, but all you really need to know now is that oil is way more expensive than it's been at many other times and it's gone up a lot recently. So that's a, a risk. Like all you really need to know is it could be that if you your only margin of safety is based on today's price, then maybe that's not much of a margin of safety. Mm-hmm. You only need to know that it's crazily, that it's crazily uh, strong. You don't need to know that the price, you don't really need to know how much more of an opinion than that and the reverse is also true if it's super cheap then it's easier like if you know it's abnormally low in the commodity that you're in or the demands abnormally low you're at a low point in whatever cycle you're in that kind of thing so people probably spend too much time worrying about that you know they look at a chart and see 20 years and we're right in the middle of what it's been but then they worry well but what if it collapses you know Mm -hmm. in the future or something like that and you usually you don't really have to worry about that unless if you're on the trend of the long term for it and you worry should worry more about like just the price and the quality of the business and all that you know because say a home builder you could there's enough stuff you could gather on that forever we talked about movie stuff you could gather stuff forever about movies and trying to prove to yourself whether it will come back or not in the end it's kind of speculative You know you have to do the research you can and decide like with those movie theater companies but i don't think you can ever definitely come to a conclusion that it will recover from covid to the point where it was before and so it's just a question of margin of safety where we say with cinemark probably it's 10 times earnings um unleveraged if it recovers back to the point of covid 15 times earnings is not a crazy price to pay for a stock so you have that margin of safety if it does come back the way it it, uh, had previously. And if it doesn't, you haven't really paid a crazy price for the stock. So it's more thinking about it that way. I think that makes sense and trying to gather information on it to see if that's true. But you can drive yourself crazy gathering all the information, all the different pundits, ideas of whether it will come back 100% to where it was before or not. And so it's that kind of slightly speculative thing and more macro thing that I see that people are driving themselves crazy with gathering too much information on the specific company, like off the things that you can find about trying to think, okay, so what are their sales per square foot? What's their business model really look like? What's their, whatever that isn't quite in their 10 K, but you can gather information on it. I don't find that that's a problem that people gather too much on. It's usually when it's a little bit out of that and it's more like, like I said, what like could the go speculative, wrong, yeah. the macro mm-hmm. type things, worrying about something where someone says. You know um, you, you know something that some trend or whatever trying to predict the future with that those are really hard and so for, when you realize it's that's happening with someone I would say to them like okay maybe drop this idea like drop this whole idea of this category of things because if you notice yourself doing that and um, let's say you're doing that and you're thinking about energy companies or something you're thinking about coal and wind and solar and and natural gas and whatever if you're that kind of person that's just skip those kinds of stocks because you'll drive yourself crazy because it has, the truth is it depends on the relative pricing of all those things. And no one can really predict, uh, they can predict a few big things in a really big way. And some trends people might be able to predict for you, but trying to actually like come up with a model for that, it can't be done. I
0: was gonna say, would would you say? There's always some reasons you could come up with not to buy a stock.
1: Mm-hmm yeah. And if, um, and if you really get to that point, either you're trying, you're worrying too much about things that are unlikely to happen, or the moving parts involved with the stock are just so difficult that really it only makes sense if it's like a, re- this is only a stock you should really buy if it's really cheap or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then just realize that it's a speculation that might go well or not, you know? So if it's a really low price to book or it's a net net or something, then it might make sense. You could drive yourself crazy when we talk about like Friedman Industries or something or you could just look at it and say, okay, maybe once a net and I buy it, and then I sell it, you know, and realize that you can't come up with a good prediction about it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't buy something when it's a net net. You know, there's different levels of confidence that you need, depending on price and all of those things about what you're doing. And there's, I've bought net nets before. I didn't do a detailed analysis of what I thought the future of the business was gonna be. All I did is it wasn't going broke. It's made money in the past seemed like a decent enough business. It wasn't a fraud. It was a net net. That's really all that I needed to know. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, we'll do a couple more. Okay. How do you estimate the maintenance capex of a business?
1: That's uh, very hard. I don't believe that you can. <laughs> I mean, uh, I do some calculations and, and we've seen where we, we look at quick FS to try mm-hmm. to figure it out, but I never believe that you know what maintenance capex is. Um, when they're in certain segments and stuff, where i know that it's totally um unrelated then um so i can tell it's completely growth in that segment because like that segment that's uh, i can separate it out right so um i would say that's mostly how you do it um it's actually really complicated and even now that we're talking about where we have higher inflation, that throws off all the measurements that you had before. People who have been doing it based on here's, it's this percent of sales, this percent of assets. Actually, none of that's gonna work in a world of 8% inflation, instead so of have 2%. And um, I'm usually just trying to be very conservative about it. Unless I have really strong proof that they're like Amazon or something and they're spending all of this just to grow and we can see that in the numbers, I really think about all the capex is maintenance capex. And that's my baseline. And then I move from there if I have to, to say, okay, well actually it's not that bad. What Teledyne would do when they analyzed it inside their company, they had an interesting way of doing it. It wasn't just maintenance, they also had the issue of like receivables inventory. What they would do is they would look at their subsidiaries and they'd say to their, you know, the different business units that they had with the, uh, they'd have a manager who's kind of compensated based on how he does. And they draw their budgets and everything. And what they say is your profit is basically we take your gap profit, basically, you know, your operating profit inside the company, and we take out how much cash you actually generated, and we kind of say it's the average of that. And that's not a bad guess um, if you had to. So the actual free cash flow that is cash flow from operations minus all capex, and compare that to the reported profits. The reported profits are a lot better than the free cash flow that you're seeing, I might be being unfairly conservative, right? Uh, It's possible that they're really investing a lot for growth. Um, But then you have to see like a stronger growing business for that reason usually. Also, you can do it based on like unit information or square footage information or any of that that you have. You know, like a supermarket will give you the square footage on all their locations and everything. So I will give them credit for actually expanding the number of square feet. That's not maintenance capex. But anything that is the same square footage, then I will say that's, that's maintenance, that's not growth. So growing your square footage by 2%, that capex is growth. But any investment you make in the same square footage, I would say is maintenance.
0: We could close with this last question. Best banking books to give to non-bankers, males and females on a community's bank board.
1: And you think it is, uh, you have that website that you like?
0: Yeah, so he actually CC okay. Max on banks. He's got a great thing. Is with banks is there's not a lot of like how to investing books on it, other no. than Bank Investors Handbook by right. no, Nate Tobik, which yep. is a great book. I just think the other great way to learn about banks is just reading a lot of history about banks that have failed. <laughs> yeah, um, they don't write enough about the ones that succeeded. No,
1: I'd say don't. about half of all banking books I've read. Are it's all blowups. The bank failing. Yeah. Um like failing spectacularly that's the whole point of the whole book is why they wrote it, is that it's a bank failure um yeah i have tons of them i have a whole uh uh shelf full of those sorts of things and yeah it's good and you read a lot of them so they there actually are a lot of histories of individual banks uh you want ones that failed and stuff there's uh what were some of the ones that i mentioned that i liked uh what was the penn square one was it it wasn't funny money it was uh, what was it i forget Um, but we see, I think he has it on his website. Yeah, he does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that one I thought was good. There's actually, there are two different Penn square ones that I read. Um, there was a Washington mutual one that I think people would like that one again, that's because the bank failed. That's why they did it. Um, but there's some that are, you know, um, history of the bank where it worked out. And I would say
0: to this question, once you kind of understand how a bank works, Go and study a microcap bank, a smaller bank where you could really—they probably have like a couple of ways that they lend. Their deposits probably come from you know one or two sources. It's much more simplified to sort of take that foundational knowledge that you're learning and apply it to something that's real life. Because if you're going to go and look at like a J.P. Morgan or a Bank of America or as well as Fargo, that's great, but their businesses are way more complex than what a uh, a micro or a small cap bank is going to be
1: yeah so to give to non-bankers which is the question there on on the board probably i was pr- i think we're going to say start with the uh, bank investors handbook right Wouldn't yeah you say mm-hmm. because of how it's laid out like it's basically what is banking what is a bank and you can go from there into other things but that's probably the book and focus compounding podcasts
0: on <laughs> banks there you go cool well, i want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us today on the focus compound podcast we will come back to this q a lots going on in the markets recently in the world and uh because of the recent volatility i thought it'd be great to see what's on everybody's minds so be on the lookout for that you follow me on twitter if you follow me on twitter at at focus compound um you could ask a question and we'll pull it up and try to answer as many as possible on the podcast. If you're interested in learning more about our money management services, reach out to me, andrew at focuscompounding.com. Thank you so much for all the support to everybody listening, viewing, watching on whatever device you are. And we will see you in the next podcast.